welcome back to NRI Woman, a show where we chat with women of Indian origin living abroad. I'm Lenora. And I'm Bettina. A lot of women struggle through infertility. When faced with it, many don't know who to turn to or where to begin. Some are afraid of opening up because of the stigma associated with the subject. The pressure to have a child after marriage in our Indian culture can place a tremendous burden mostly on the woman. Being childless is physically, mentally and emotionally exhausting and can be a very lonely ride. Our guest today, Sapna Shah, is here to talk to us about how she and her husband Parag struggled through 10 years of infertility before she was able to get pregnant. And three times the joy, they had triplets. She talks to us about her journey from infertility to becoming a parent who now focuses on raising emotionally intelligent children. Sapna is an only child and was born and grew up in Florida, USA. Her parents migrated from Africa to the US where they owned and managed a motel. And it was here that Sapna learned the value of building meaningful relationships that would impact how she lives her life and raises her children. Um, my parents owned a motel and restaurant from when I was one until uh, 12. And so I spent my early years kind of in the laundry room with the laundry lady folding laundry and on the hip of the cook in the restaurant. And every morning I'd have breakfast with the mayor of the small town that we lived in. And it was really kind of a really strong foundation for how to build meaningful relationships and how to interact with a wide variety of people. And so when I was thinking about what I tell people about myself, that's really an important part of who I am. And, uh, and that it started so early um, is really impactful to me. She studied at the University of Florida, got her MBA, met her husband Parag online, and got married young. We were married at 24, but we, I mean, we were ready to ha start having kids right away. So we, um, we, we did, we just thought it would happen naturally. And so it wasn't something that like, you know, we were working towards, but we just thought, well, it'll happen when it happens. And then a year went by and we didn't get pregnant. And then we we're like, okay, you know, I'm not sure what that means. So we waited another six months and then um, and then I said, well, you know, let's at least just go and get some basic testing done to find out, you know, is, the, is there actually an issue or, you know, is it just, it just hasn't happened yet. So that's kind of when we started uh, the testing was a year and a half uh, after we got married. With all these tests done, they waited for the diagnosis. Uh, well, what... I love to say is that um, there was nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong. The, do the doctors could not find anything. Um, and, I, you know, our journey is long. It spans 10 years. So we had that testing. Then we tried again for another eight months. Then we had testing again. And it literally was the doctors could not figure out why we would not get pregnant. And um, it's called unexplained infertility, which is a terrible name for it. But nobody, nobody could tell us why. There was no reason for us not to get pregnant. And I'm kind of a fix-it person, so tell me what the problem is and I'll fix it. And so to have, you know, multiple doctors say there is no problem, I'm like, obviously there's a problem. I'm not having babies. <laughs> you know, you, you can't tell me there's no problem. There is a problem. Um, and the fact that you don't know what it is 
definitely doesn't make me feel better about the medical community. <laughs> so I, you know, it was it was definitely a that 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 specific diagnosis is definitely was definitely a struggle for us um, because then there's a lot of self doubt that comes in. Did I do something uh, that is it, is God mad at me for some reason? Is there some other, is there something that I did that is the reason why I don't deserve to have kids? Or, you know, I mean, your mind can go a million different ways. And because we struggled for so long, my mind went in every different way. Um, and so that, you know, that is, that is the biggest emotional scar from, from that diagnosis of unexplained is, you know, the why. And there is no answer to the why until you get on the other side of it. An unexplained infertility diagnosis can be very frustrating for couples who are trying to conceive. While it may be reassuring that there is no problem, it can also be exasperating that there is no solution. And this uncertainty can take a toll on one's relationship. You know, I think that there, it's such a, um, it's such an intimate problem, and especially in our culture, it's not something that you talk about. You don't talk about it with your friends. You don't talk about it with your parents. You don't talk about it, you know. Everybody just keeps asking you, when are you having kids? When are you having kids? And they don't understand the context of that question. Um, and so for us, we really only had each other to lean on to talk about what we were going through emotionally. And so I think, that leaning in made us stronger. Um, but there's also, you know, the other side of it, which does take a toll because when you, that, that almost can consume your relationship if you let it. Um, we didn't really uh, share it with anybody um, because we hadn't decided what we wanted to do. And we were, and you know, but, by medical standards, we were still young. You know, we got married when we were 24. So I kind of felt like until I'm 30, I can still say we're not ready to have kids yet. So we we just kind of, people you know, people stop asking. And um, if, you know, our parents asked us, we'd just say we were working on it. And so we never really said anything to anybody until we decided to start uh, IUI, which is kind of the first, IUI is the first step uh, when you start your infertility journey. And that's uh, intrauterine insemination. So that's where they take the sperm and inject it in the hopes that uh, you'll naturally conceive. Beginning the treatment was a big step for Sapna and Parag, as it meant moving away from the natural course of things. While there were statistics and data available on the success rates of IUI, none of it would prepare them for a negative outcome of the treatment. No, that treatment didn't work for us. Yeah, so we did, um, we did three IUIs, um, and then those didn't work. The diagnosis was still unexplained. And so then we took a break for another two years, did some other things. Uh, and then finally, we um, 
IVF was a very scary step for me at the time because I felt like it was a like a, a stop sign or a period at the end of a sentence that if this doesn't work, you're not having kids. There's nothing beyond that. And so we, I really didn't want to do IVF because I didn't want uh, to feel like if it, if it wasn't successful, I didn't want to go through that. Um, but we met a an acupuncturist who uh, was phenomenal. She specialized in infertility, an older Asian woman who had been practicing Eastern and Western medicine for decades. Um, she had helped hundreds and hundreds of women conceive. And so when I met her, you know, she said, come and see me. So I went to see her. She poured over everything and she said, yeah, that's no, no worries. Let's start. And so we started, and after four months, uh, she said to me, okay, now do an IVF cycle. And so uh, she recommended a doctor. And we went to, the, I, went, I actually went to that doctor for the first time by myself. And I met him and uh, was extremely comfortable. So we did one IVF cycle with him in conjunction with the acupuncture. Uh, that round was unsuccessful. And at that point, Prague and I decided that we were not going to do another one. We decided that, um, you know, there are a lot of chemicals, there are a lot of costs, there are, you know, it's a lot of emotional toll. And then for it not to be successful was just, it was a, um, it was such a roller coaster. So we decided not to do any more. But when we had decided that, we were already a couple weeks into the next cycle. And so both the acupuncturist and the IVF doctor said to us, do this cycle and then, you do, and then don't do any more. Sapna and Parag took a two-year break between the IUI and IVF treatments. After the IUI was unsuccessful, they knew how much harder it would be to deal with the result if the IVF didn't work. They wanted to be as prepared as possible to handle the outcome of the IVF treatment. We had to take the break for our marriage, for our headspace, for us to just kind of reset. And, and it's very easy to put yourself in a place where that is what your entire world revolves around, but that's not healthy for anybody. And so we took that that break to refocus, to get regrounded. You know, I did a lot of yoga, I quit my job, I um, did a lot of, you know, different different things that were just things that I enjoyed. Uh, Prague and I, you know, we, we went out again, we did, you know, all of the things to remember as a couple who we are. And then it was after the two years that, um, and it took two years for us to kind of get to a place where we felt like we were okay to start to try, you know, IVF. But I think it was only because we met that acupuncturist. If we hadn't met her, you know, she was she was really just a, she just had so much experience and was just such a positive voice that she made she was the reason we did it. Sapna was 35 at the time of the second IVF cycle. 
both Parag and she had decided that this was it. They were not going to do any more treatments if this one didn't work. They didn't have an alternate plan at the time and chose to focus on the present. And after an anxious wait, it was time to find out the result. Well, I told the nurse from the beginning that I would never take a home pregnancy test because I didn't want to go through that emotional, uh, to get that news by myself or just Parag and I. Like, there were so many people working towards this goal that I wanted her to tell me if I was pregnant or not and that for her to celebrate or suffer with me. <laughs> so um, I did not take a, preg a home pregnancy test. Uh, I went in for blood work. And so I sat down in the chair, both the nurses were there, the doctor was in with somebody else, Parag was standing there, she drew my blood, and I just sat there while we waited. And um, she, she looked at it and she yelled at the top of her lungs and said, you are so pregnant and uh, and that's how we found out that we were pregnant. And six weeks later, Sapna and Parag found out that they were pregnant with triplets, Pranav, Pavni and Vraj, who will be six this year. They had been through the extreme emotions that tag alongside dealing with infertility. But Sapna was not prepared for what happened after the children were born. I suffered very deep postpartum depression and uh, in the US, I don't, I don't know how it is in other countries, in the US when you go to your OB and say I have postpartum depression, really the only qualification is do you want to hurt your children or not? Do I want to hurt my children? No, I don't want to hurt my children. Well then, you know, you're not really depressed. Uh, or we can put you on medication and see what happens. There's no real solution. Um, or there's no, they don't give you a path for how to come out of it. Sapna didn't think she needed medication at the time. And so she had to discover her own path to get out of the depression. I saw a short interview uh, where Oprah interviewed an author named Michael Singer. And he wrote uh, a book called The Untethered Soul. And I saw the interview and he talks about how we always have control of our lives, how we have control to make the decisions that we want to make. And we have the, we make the choice whether we're going to be happy in this moment or not. We're going to make the choice of whether we are going to live a fulfilled life or not. And when I saw that interview, it struck a chord with me. And so I bought his book and I read it. And I read it again and again and again. I think I read it like seven times from cover to cover until it. I really got it. And it's a blueprint for how to get grounded, how to stop your mind from that incessant talking that really is just a waste of energy and how to get um, grounded into your own space and who you are and how you can choose to be happy in every moment in your life. And so once I did that and I did the work and I practice every day, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. Yeah, it was that book. Um, I had a doula when uh, we had the triplet. And so I would call her crying after we got home. And I would say, you know, I just don't know. I, I, 
I don't know top from bottom. I don't know front from back. I don't know day from night. I just, I don't know. I'm completely lost. And she said to me, are your kids alive? And I said, yes. She said, are you alive? And she said, yes. And I said, yes. And she said, that's your threshold right now. That's all you have to be good at is to keep your kids and yourself alive. That's your threshold. If you are that, if you can do that, you are a good mother. And it was her telling me that, that clicked for me, that that's all I have to do. All I have, you know, I don't have to have the laundry done. I don't have to have food on the table for the adults. I don't have to make the beds. I don't have to do any of that. I have to keep the kids alive and I have to be alive and that's about it. That's the extent of my responsibility. So I really uh, stripped everything out of my life and got back down to the very simplest uh, simplest route of where I only had one responsibility and that was it and I could definitely do that and I walked a lot every time I would feel the <clears throat> the sadness or the depression I'd go outside I would have three kids strapped to me with um with this long uh scarf that she taught me how to uh, this long wrap that she taught me how to wrap all three and I would just go for a walk. I could walk 30, 45 minutes. Uh, and they were happy as clams because they're, you know, they're with mom. So they could care less what they were doing. They were just with mom. And so it was those three things, knowing that <clears throat> I only had this one responsibility to keep them alive, that I had to get outside and move my body and breathe the air and be present and look at the trees and remember, you know, this moment and reading that book, which kept teaching me and helping me to practice and stay consistent. It was those three things that got me out of the postpartum depression. She didn't know it then, but going through the postpartum depression and the recovery gave Sapna a blueprint for life. This blueprint has helped her seize the opportunities that came her way from starting an organic clothing line for children to building a parenting network, We Go Kids. It was really strange. It was, uh, it was really strange. I was sitting on the floor. The triplets were napping. They were six months old. <clears throat> and I got a uh, Facebook message from my yoga teacher. And she said, I'm looking for cute yoga clothes for my grandkids and I can't find any. Maybe you'll do something with that. And, um, I laughed out loud because beyond the bottles and the, the feedings and the diapers and everything, I, I couldn't see anything else. Um, but I had always had an entrepreneurial spirit. Have. So when she sent me that message, although I had zero intention of doing anything with it, it planted a seed. And then I would just, over the next several weeks, just start posting in mom's group saying, hey, does anybody know how to sew? Does anybody know this? Can anybody help me with that? And it's not that it wasn't work. It was a lot of work, but it wasn't a struggle. The resources literally started showing up at my doorstep. And so I could not, I could not ignore that. And I had no idea where it was going. Um, but I just took one step at a time. I had no vision in my head. I was literally just kind of following whatever the universe was unfolding. And um, we 
and we started with a with local moms sewing the clothes in their homes and then I would go to local markets and sell them and uh, so I was test marketing it that way but once and we would sell out almost every time and but after I'd sell something, I would end up in a 30 to 40 minute conversation with the parent who bought the clothing and they just had parenting questions. When they found out that I have triplets, I mean, there were just so many questions that came up, you know, how do you, how do you feed them at the same time? How do you get them to sleep? My kid won't do this. How do you get them to do that? You know, my kid, I struggle with this. How do you deal with it? And so, I found that even though there are hundreds of thousands of parenting books out there and you know blogs you can read and lots of places to go, people still weren't getting the answers that they really needed to help them um, be happier parents. You know, they, it, it was it was a struggle, and so once the clothing. Once I realized that the clothing was doing well, uh, we went into factory production and I started the parenting network. So we started with TV shows because it was entertaining and it was fun, it was easy to watch and we just focused on really actionable, small actionable steps that a parent who's likely watching us while they're on the toilet in the morning can then turn off their phone and go and do it during their day and actually it will make a difference. Having children usually results in the balance being tilted in favor of meeting the child's wants and needs, leaving very little time for the parents to do anything else. This is even harder when the children are little. So the first show of We Go Kids addressed exactly this, how to find a balance between parenting and other aspects of one's life. There are some trick, uh, some uh, tricks or hacks or whatever you want to call it that I use. Uh, one is to stop multitasking. We're not meant to multitask. It takes us out of the present moment. And so uh, I completely stopped multitasking and I only time block. So that means that I literally sit down with a calendar because there are only so many days so many hours in the day and I block out my time. For this hour, I'm going to be working on We Go Kids. For this hour, I'm going to be homeschooling the triplets. For this hour, I'm going to be doing this. And during that time, I only focus on that one task. So that was one. <laughs> it's so impactful. It takes a lot of practice. You have to stay consistent with it. But I am so... I am far more effective and happy now than I've ever been in my entire life. And then, I, you know, self-care is the third one. There's the analogy about when you're on an airplane and you, um, in the event of an emergency, you put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on your child. That's a blueprint for life. That's not um, that if you, if you don't take care of yourself, you're no good to anybody else. And in our society, we are made to feel guilty, especially women. We are made to feel guilty that we are taking care of ourselves first. But if we do not take care of ourselves first, we cannot take care of anybody else. And so my third 
tip for uh, parenting work-life balance is make self-care has to be a priority in your life all the time. Get rid of the guilt in what you know, whatever way you have to, but you have to take care of yourself. And it doesn't mean I have to go for a massage every week or I have to go get a pedicure. It can mean anything that it means to you. If it's I'm gonna sit down and drink a cup of coffee in the morning by myself or I'm gonna go for a 10 minute walk, or I'm gonna sit down and drink a glass of water instead of trying to do it while I'm doing 20 other things. Whatever self-care means to you, I'm gonna sit and read one page from this book that I love, I'm gonna sit and listen to this one song that I love, I'm gonna have a dance party. You have to make self-care a priority every day in order to be able to take care of others. Sapna expands that concept of self-care to other aspects of her life too. She chooses to fill her time with what's good for her and the children and wants to model balance and healthy habits. We don't do a lot of like outside extracurricular, like they're not in dance, they're not in sports, they're not in, they're not in all of these, I'm not sitting in a car running kids around uh, trying to make it from one class to another. Their time now is most valuable spending it with me so when i am with them then i'm with them and i have i plan out activities for us to do around the house we go for walks we go for bike rides we play with the dog we build forts we play legos we go swimming we have dance parties and what's interesting in that is that if you look you know you really have to sit and think why am I sending them to swim class? What is it that I want them to get out of that class? What, you know, why am I doing this? Because somebody else is doing it? Or because I want them to be an Olympic swimmer? Or is it because I feel like a swimming class will teach them certain things? If it is the answer that somebody else is doing it, well, then you need to not do it. If the answer is that I want them to be a Olympic swimmer, you really need to sit with that and think about if that's really what you want and then for your child. And then the third thing is if you want them to learn certain things from that activity, what other activities can you do with them where they will still learn the same things? but? that do not put a stress on your relationship, on your time, on your life, that you can accomplish the same thing just by doing something else. I, I think it's one of those things though where everybody's thinking it but nobody will say it. You know, I bet every every parent is thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't wanna sit in the car for that many hours. And also, I mean, look at it the other end. On the other side, what are we teaching our kids? That this is what life is supposed to be like, us, this is our relationship, us in a car going from activity to activity. That's not what I want my life to be. That's not what I want to teach my kids. Sapna is very aware of how she's raising her children. Her background in HR has helped her recognize the importance of emotional intelligence. I was in HR and recruiting and I worked for, you know, big multinational corporations for ten, for, for 10 years. And when I first started working, the my boss said to me, I want to build an emotional intelligence framework for this department because um, of all of these issues that they were having. So that kind of started me on my journey of researching and learning. And then over the course of the decade, I um, created trainings for, for improving emotional intelligence. 
And I mean, the statistics are crazy. Like some somebody with emotional intelligence earns over twenty thousand dollars more than than their counterpart. Um, it's the number one predictor of personal satisfaction, um, happy relationships, financial success. Like emotional intelligence has been scientifically proven to be the number one indicator for a happy life. But in the 10 years that I worked on it, I only applied it to adults. So when I had the triplets and I had no idea which way was up or down, emotional intelligence was my comfort zone. So I wanted to figure out how do I apply that to a newborn? How do I apply that to me being a parent? And so that, you know, the conscious breathing, the being present and in the moment, the understanding your emotions and how to allow them to process through your body, how to move your body in order to get those feelings out and to let them pass, how to recognize when somebody else is expressing an emotion and how do you empathize with them? Well, how do you react to them? So these are all things that I started teaching. I started using with the kids, you know, as early as I can remember. And it's, I, I realized that I had something when I didn't have the, the, a lot of the issues that other parents would talk about. They would say, you know, they would talk about tantrums and they would talk about like all of these different things. And I was like, well, what is wrong with me? My kids don't do any of that. And then I, and then I realized that it was building their emotional intelligence from such an early age that now I'm just, you know, building such a strong foundation for it. And my belief is that we are born with it, that we are born with a high level of connection to being human, a high level of emotional intelligence, which the reason why I don't like the word is because it sounds like you're smart, but it, it actually has nothing to do with intelligence. It has to do with an awareness of yourself and your purpose and your emotions. And so I feel that babies are most in tune with their emotional intelligence, and then we parent it out of that. What I'm trying to shift is for us to start nurturing that emotional intelligence from the time they are born so that we raise, you know, we raise children who don't have a lot of the issues that our society has now. Through her infertility journey, Sapna recognized the power of letting go, the power of living in the moment and letting the universe take over while being a willing recipient. She hopes to be an exemplar of this for her children. The only thing that I want them to learn from me, from me is to be present and in the, in the moment and to be happy with this moment in your life. The, the infertility journey in my life has taught me that when I have an expectation of what is supposed to be in the future, I limit myself. And so when I can have a dream and let it go and and allow better things to happen that is where the power is so i focus on this moment with them i focus on being happy and giving gratitude for this moment and um i don't worry about anything else being present in the moment is something most of us have to reinvent at times 
and often the reason for not being able to do it is that we take on so much. Maybe this quote is a good place to start, if we want to change that is. It's from the book that changed Sapna's life, The Untethered Soul. We're constantly trying to hold it all together. If you really want to see why you do things, then don't do them and see what happens. Join us again next time for more inspiring stories of NRI women. If you like the show, please recommend us to a friend and don't forget to rate us as it helps other people find us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at hello at nriwoman.com or tweet us at nri underscore woman. Stay tuned for highlights for the next episode at the end of the show. You can see and learn more about the amazing women we chat with on our Facebook page or website www.nriwoman.com. I'm Bettina. And I'm Nanora. Until next time, keep learning, keep inspiring and be kind. Next week on NRI Woman. Currently, what we're trying to do is understand what their causes of distress are, like kind of more like root causes of distress as opposed to just, you know, mental health literacy. Because I think that at the end of the day, like the assumption was that spreading mental health literacy is going to help reduce mental health illness, improve mental health and like reduce distress at some level. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure you subscribe. Also, please check out our fellow podcaster, Hong Kong Confidential, with Jules Hannaford. Jules interviews people from Hong Kong about their lives, personal journeys, and secrets. Guests share their wisdom, experiences, and insights with the audience. Her podcasts are available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts from. Hong Kong Confidential is a podcast designed to educate and entertain my audience. It's an interview-style show where many topical social issues are discussed and personal stories are shared. The podcast can be inspiring, confronting, harrowing, and at times hilarious. We all need to be heard to heal, and listening to the experiences of others can often help the rest of us deal with what life has to throw at us. Hong Kong Confidential, available on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and Google Play.